concerned that too many are pursuing shadows. Here's Pastor Ed Taylor. Many a man or woman are chasing after shadows through religion and rituals, and that's where they stop, going through the motions. When you think of shadows, think of religion, think of rituals, think formalism and habits that may have some spiritual definition, but they fall so short of reality. This is amazing grace. The value of a shadow is that it proves the substance. However, too many have settled for the shadow and don't realize it. Thanks for joining us today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We're starting the book of Hebrews today that speaks of shadows versus substance, the new covenant versus the old, Jesus versus religion. And it begs the question, which is better and to be pursued? While these aren't hard questions to answer, it's critical that they are. Here now is Pastor Ed. Well, take your Bibles, open them to the book of Hebrews, which is toward the end of the New Testament, right before James, as we learn about the superiority of Jesus, how important he is, and you could say even more important than anything related to God. You know, shadows really never measure up to the reality. There are no details with shadows. There's not an exact match. Shadows are dark and a poor representation of that which is casting the shadow. And it's foolish for us to desire the shadow more than the substance. When you think of shadows, I I can't help but think of how dogs will chase after their shadow. Very similar to what they chase after their tail. They just get into the groove, and in their mind, you can just kind of see in their eyes, they they don't quite know what that is. They don't understand what it is, and they keep chasing and keep chasing, and they never really get to the place where they realize they're never going to catch their shadow. They're never going to catch up to it. And even as they chase their shadows, they're never, never satisfied. I can say that over the years, many a follower of God have chased after shadows when it comes to the things of God, shadows. For, for definition, let's think through this for a moment. Shadows are a mere reflection of reality. Shadows are a mere reflection of reality. It was to the Gentile church that Paul wrote this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. He said, Don't let anyone judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And so if you're taking notes, let's take notes and let's take note of the shadow and the substance. When you think of shadows, when it comes to God, think of shadows this way, religion and rituals. Now, while our focus in Hebrews will be to those 
Jewish believers of the first century don't think for a moment that the relevance of the book doesn't speak to us today, where many a man or woman are chasing after shadows through religion and rituals, and that's where they stop, going through the motions. When you think of shadows, think of religion, think of rituals, think formalism and habits that may have some spiritual definition, but they fall so short of reality. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. The importance of Bible reading. So important, reading your Bible. The, the emphasis of the Bible, you'll never know it unless you read it. But reading the Bible can become a shadow in your life. It can become ritualistic. It can actually, reading the Bible can actually become a burden to you. Like it's so much, so hard for you. And then it becomes a spiritual habit so that you read the Bible, maybe you get up in the morning and you know you got a busy day, you got a lot going on, and so you open up the Bible, you crack it open, read it through, and, and you're, really not, you're really not going after the substance when it comes to the Bible. You're stuck on the words on a page. You're stuck on the formalism. You're stuck on, well, the thought that maybe you're going to see someone later in the day that's going to ask you about your Devo life or what you learn in Devos. And, and so you went through real quick so you can check off the box and so you can say that you did it, and yet stuck in the shadows. It's just a mere representation of what God had for you when you open up the Bible. When you think of shadows, think of religion and formalism and habits. When you think of substance, when you think of substance, think of relationship and intimacy. Think of freedom and grace and mercy and worship. Just like Paul's telling the Colossians, he says, you're getting up in, in what you should drink, and you're getting up in the, the, the old festivals, and you, you're thinking that's where the substance is, but they're just shadows. They're just pointing you toward the substance, and the substance of your relationship and mine is Christ. It's what the Colossians were dealing with. It's what Jewish believers are dealing with in Hebrews, and it's what many people deal with today. It can be a little difficult for us here in the 21st century to enjoying the grace of God, enjoying a church setting relating, you know, to loving God and having a fullness or a growing fullness of who Jesus is in our lives. It can be difficult for us in the 21st century to transport ourselves back to the first century or the first couple of centuries of it, the Christianity in its infancy, in its very beginning. There seems to be a, a distance between us by not only years, but by relationship and by action, especially in the Western church, especially in the church of the United States and where we've started and where we're heading. You see, the first century Jewish person that placed their faith in Jesus Christ came from a religious system that contained very precise laws and requirements and sacrifices and rules very precise, that they would, those that would embrace their Jewish Messiah did so having been convinced of the Holy Spirit that he fulfilled over 300 prophecies or predictions of his coming. And they embraced him. They left behind Judaism and the formalism, but many people brought it with them. As a matter of fact, if you read carefully in the book of Acts, especially when it comes to Acts chapter 15, the battle over what to do with Gentile believers, 
What are we going to do as the church now is expanding beyond the Jewish population on into the rest of the known world at the time? That's what chapter 15 of Acts is all about. Do we require them to be circumcised and follow the law or not? And the decision that day could have relegated Christianity to just be another sect within Judaism, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and could have been a third category, Christians. But you recall that was not the coming of Messiah's purpose or plan at all. It was not God's plan in the larger scope of what he was doing on the earth today. You see, when a believer in the first century embraced Messiah, they truly experienced the loss of everything. It was that type of decision. Today we equate receiving Jesus Christ with the gaining of things, when at the same time God is also calling you to the loss of many things. For a Jew in the first century, for them to embrace their Messiah was to lose everything. It it was seen by your family that you defected, that you betrayed the family and you betrayed your upbringing. You would have to face the, the despising of your family and your friend, the abandonment of your friends and your culture, and it provided, see, the environment of losing everything, losing your job, losing your family, losing your identity, even though you were progressing forward in the fulfillment, the shadows becoming the substance. For those that rejected Messiah, they also rejected you that followed, and you would lose everything. I have to say, both then and now, the thought of losing things is a great motivation to turn your back on Jesus Christ. I mean, for them, as we get into the book of Hebrews, you will see that there was a great temptation to go back to formalism of the old covenant and embrace that for the sake of gaining back their family and their friends and what they believe is their identity. But the same is true today. As you begin to lose friends, and you begin to lose influence, and you begin to lose what you so treasured and valued, there's a great temptation. Jesus put it this way. He said that the cares and concerns of life ripped out that seed of the gospel that was planted into your life. Because we live in a very affluent culture. We live in a culture that, that values things and possessions, and where it may not be going back to the shadows of the formalism of any kind of religion, it is going back to the shadows of things that simply don't satisfy. And you'll see that throughout. The Hebrew believers that he's writing to were greatly tempted to go backwards, to go back to what was normal for them, what was familiar for them. And one of the overwhelming themes, for those of you taking notes, one of the highest level themes in the book of Hebrews is simply the superiority of Jesus Christ. Or, as we're learning, and we'll see this phrase, I'll use this phrase constantly because it'll help you remember, the value of substance over shadow. Or, the supremacy of the new covenant replacing the old covenant. Jesus came in to do a new work to fulfill all that God desired. As one commentator put it, from Adam to Moses through 2,500 years, from Moses to Malachi through 1,100 years, the prophets were speaking for God to man. But at the end of the 3,600 years, their revelation of God was only partial, only partial. 
Then after a silence of 400 years, that's the, that's the time between Malachi and the book of Matthew, a silence of 400 years, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, and in that son the revelation of God is perfect. Notice with me verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he was by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The superiority of Jesus, the substance, the new covenant over Judaism, the shadow, and the old covenant. Now what I find fascinating as we open up a new book of the Bible is that hundreds of years ago there was a lot of debate going on within the western side of the church over the book of Hebrews. Why? Well, there has been a concerted effort that is still with us today for those within the church to somehow usurp the place of Israel in the heart of God. You may hear this as something known as replacement theology. And it's simply this. The idea or the teaching which I believe to be false, is that the church has replaced Israel in the heart and the plan of God. It's a very prevalent doctrine, very popular. You see, hundreds of years ago when the birthing of this took place, the church wanted to usurp the place of Israel, so naturally they rejected a book, Hebrews, they rejected Hebrews, a book that's so steeped with God's plan for the Jewish people, for Israel. They adopted all of the promises of God that made to Israel, and they spiritualized them, applying them to themselves as theologians and rejecting God's eternal purposes with Israel. They denied the fact that God would restore Israel. Now, you happen to be listening to a Bible study, and you happen to be a part of a church that does not believe that the Bible teaches that at all. We believe, along with Paul the Apostle, and along with the heart of God, that God is not done with the nation of Israel. And that the church has not replaced Israel. They are two distinct entities. Actually, if you want to write it down, there are three distinct people groups that the Bible mentions specifically as it relates to the eternal plan of God. Now, there's a lot of different people groups and nations and such, but three distinct people groups as it relates to the salvation plan of God. Number one, there is the nation of Israel and all of its divisions, as we're learning on Wednesdays, Judah, Israel, all of its divisions the nation of Israel. That's God's heart, his people, number one. Number two, there is the Gentile world. The Gentile world. That would be everyone outside of being Israeli or Jewish. Most of us are Gentiles. Most of us. There are a few that aren't, but most of us are Gentiles. So you have Israel, you have Gentiles, and then there's a third entity, and that is the church. And the church is made up of redeemed Jews and Gentiles. 
It's a whole different entity, not replacing the Gentiles and not replacing the Jews. And so this replacement theology, if, if you want to hear or listen for the fancy theological word, it's called supersessionism. Supersessionism. And basically it still exists today. And quite frankly, it's gaining a greater popularity. It exists today within Reformed theology, within Calvinism, much of Lutheranism, and other offshoots theologically. I believe it to be unbiblical and untrue. And although much of the anti-Semitism has been dispersed among many evangelical movements, many of the mainline denominational churches still advocate to this day an anti-Jewish sentiment. You have to understand, don't think of the political positions of Israel today representing the exact heart of God. That's simply not true. It's the same with our own country. You can't think of the political positions of our own country and various politicians represent the heart of God. What represents the heart of God? His word and the revelation of Jesus Christ. That represents perfectly the heart of God. So in your mind, don't think of the political positions of a country having exact representation of... I mean, if you study through, if you look through with the life of David and then on to Solomon and then the divided kingdom, I mean, this isn't new. Political positions don't necessarily represent the heart of God. But Jesus does. And as you look to today where the place of Israel is, let me show you something. Turn over to Romans chapter 11. Because this is so important as we step into Hebrews that, that we, must, we must be reminded of the essential plan of God for the nation of Israel. We must be reminded. In Romans chapter 11, verse 1, we gain the heart of Paul the apostle. And he asked the question that all of us must answer today. And this question is simple. He says in verse 1 of Romans chapter 11, <clears throat> I say then, has God cast away his people? And what was his answer? Certainly not. That's the strongest way that you can say no in the Greek language. Has God cast away Israel? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not, verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. In asking the question, Paul answers it. No way. Strongest possible way to say no. It's forceful and absolute. May it never be so. God has not. Though some today would say that God is done with Israel, pulpits across the land are filled with men and a few women that teach that God is done with Israel nationally, and permanently. They say in a very simple way. It's a much deeper argumentation, but in a very simple way, this is what they say. Since Israel rejected their Messiah, that's it. They don't get a chance. And therefore, God has now in his plan, according to their teaching, the church replaces Israel in all the promises of God. Now, a careful study of the scriptures both Old and New Covenant. It's much easier to see in the New Covenant, but a careful study through the Scriptures, even in the Old Covenant, show the eternal plan of God for Israel. Jot it down again. Ezekiel chapter 36, 37, 38, and 39 are just four pieces of evidence that show the eternal plan of God for the nation of Israel. They talk and teach us about Israel and the restoration in the future. In chapter 36, it speaks of a land that's blossoming and fruitful. And did you know today that the land of Israel has so much fruit and vegetables growing that they are one of the chief exporters of fruit and vegetables around the world? That little strip of desert 
for so many years forsaken by so many, today is one of the chief exporters of vegetables and fruit, primarily to Europe, but around the world. Chapter 37, Ezekiel, speaks of the vision of the dry bones coming back to life. And don't we all, aren't we all encouraged by that vision, both on, on just on a personal level, that what you think is lost and what you think is done, God can bring back to life. Well, the vision was for the nation of Israel, primarily. And he looks out and he sees the bones come to life. And do you know it was on May 14th, 1948, when God brought about the regathering of the Jews into the land and, and the nation of Israel was once again proclaimed a sovereign state within the world today. People are still, Jews are still arriving from around the world yearly, proclaiming Aliyah to come home as God draws them from all the nations. We don't find today a Moabite nation if you do, let me know. There's not a Jebusite nation. There's not a Canaanite nation. But there is Israel. And you can visit there with us in just a couple of weeks if you're on our trip. We'll be taking a plane ride to visit the land and see the very places that are proclaimed in the Scriptures. Greek today, the Koine Greek of the New Testament, is actually a dead language. But did you know that Hebrew is still spoken of, alive and well, spoken of around the world? Why? Because God brings life to dry bones, the nation of Israel. Chapter 38 and 39 of Ezekiel, and this is very brief summary, but chapter 38 and 39 speak of the future of Israel and how there'll be an invasion from the north, perhaps Russia and China, all sorts of predictions. God has future plans for Israel. As we look ahead in Revelation chapter 7, there's 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will go forth proclaiming the gospel on the earth. They'll be sealed and protected and will be powerfully effective. God will again turn his attention in the last seven years of human history, commonly known as Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation period, the day of the Lord. God will turn his attention again to the nation of Israel nationally and fulfill his promises to them, leading up to Revelation chapter 20 and the millennial reign of Christ literally on the earth. And Paul's first piece of evidence in Romans chapter 11 is himself. Himself. He says, if God is done with Israel as it's been taught even in the first century, then why am I saved? Why did my life get transformed? And everyone would know Saul of Tarsus' testimony. He created such havoc in the church. He, he created such damage to people's lives. He believed it was his responsibility as a good Hebrew, to destroy the church single-handedly. And he asks, why did God save me if he's done with Israel? Why would he give me such a love for my fellow Jew, sharing with them the glorious news of Messiah? And then he begins to turn, as in the rest of the chapter, of biblical examples of God's faithfulness. Well, we're just getting started in the book of Hebrews here on Abounding Grace, and today we've learned that our faith and trust in God is important, an important foundation to build our study of Hebrews on. Pastor Ed Taylor is our Bible teacher and the pastor of Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. You can hear these radio programs on our website any time of the day or night at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Another way to grow on the go is by downloading our app. Search for Calvary Aurora. 
And we have a couple of podcasts, too. You can listen to Abounding Grace and Lead to Serve in Apple Podcasts. By the way, that's Lead, the number two, Serve. In it, Pastor Ed discusses the value of servant leadership. We couldn't be more excited about the new book Pastor Ed has written, and it couldn't come at a better time. It's called God's Help for the Troubled Heart. I don't have to convince you that people are suffering in large measure all around us. And maybe you have been too. You've been laid off at work, or you recently got the virus, or are disturbed by what's happened in the recent election. You're anxious and greatly troubled. Well, God wants to meet you right where you're at. This book will remind you that Jesus will bring you through your trial, and you're not alone. Request a copy of God's Help for the Troubled Heart today. Maybe order an extra one, too, to give to a friend. We'll send it to you for a gift of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. Call 877-30-GRACE. And please remember that your gifts help to make this possible. We look to the Lord to provide for us. If He's leading you to take an active role in the ministry through either a one-time gift or ongoing support, please visit us online at AboundingGraceRadio.com or call 877-30-GRACE. We'll get back to our study of Hebrews next week on Abounding Grace. Don't miss a moment of the journey with Pastor Ed Taylor right here. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. 